hello everybody. Welcome once again to the Nefesh Podcast. This is episode 47 and I am so glad that you are with us. Hey, I have launched a resource. It's a website where you can access resources for spiritual formation. And what is spiritual formation? It is just discipleship. It is just the sanctification process of our spiritual growth, our journey with Christ. And we all need to engage in spiritual formation, and yet we are ill-equipped to do so. And so I have provided resources and coaching uh, opportunities to be able to help you grow in your spiritual formation. So check it out. It's thespiritualreformation.com. And you can see there are live classes. We just launched a live class on how to study the Bible so that it actually makes sense. And it's one of my favorite classes to teach. We do it over Zoom. You don't need anything other than your Bible and maybe access to the internet. Uh, You don't need all these fancy resources to know how to study the Bible. It's really awesome. Doing another live class in August about spiritual abuse, which will be really, really, really good. Then you can see that I have some classes that you can purchase and download and uh, some handouts that go along with it. I'm adding more stuff uh, all the time to the website and then some opportunities for one-on-one coaching. One of the reasons that I, well, the reasons that, that I am focusing on this in for the next foreseeable future in my life is because of what I've seen as I have been pastoring and teaching and just serving the church, serving people over these couple of decades, and especially as we've come through the pandemic, whether I've, I've taught classes in a public school or a private school, uh, interacted with people from literally all over the world. And what I have seen is that people are really hungry for discipleship. We, are, we all, myself included, are hungry to grow in our relationship with Christ. And we're struggling to grow ourselves and we're struggling to make disciples of others. And this is one of the areas that I think the church has really lost sight of. Now, if you're a pastor, don't take this personally. I, I have been there and I think it's uh, you are in between a rock and a hard place as you're just trying to figure out how to keep your church going, how to keep things afloat. But as we are doing that, we are losing the, the connection with people. God didn't call us to make converts. He didn't call us to build mega churches. He called us to make disciples and he calls us to discipleship ourselves. And that's what spiritual formation is. And so that is my goal right now as I focus more of the one-on-one with people, helping them grow and specific tools that can help you grow in your relationship with Christ. And sometimes it's all about just needing somebody to, to listen to you and to uh, just affirm that you are not crazy. I mean, some of you are crazy, but I won't go into details about who those are. But you, we, we just want somebody to listen to us and to give us, whether it's mentoring and, or guidance or just, just journey with us, just walk side by side figuratively with us and and help us as we try to navigate this world as followers of Jesus. And so I'm very excited about that. Um, and I'm going to continue to interact with people through this Nefesh podcast and, and hear people's stories because I think it's so powerful. 
Um, and because that is where our spiritual formation takes place. It's in our lives, in our stories. And hopefully through each person's stories, you are able to sense how God works and maybe connect with it in your own life. And it get, brings you hope and it draws you closer to Christ. TheSpiritualReformation.com, check it out. And again, more resources are going to be added um, each week. Uh, hopefully a few more of those downloadable courses uh, that, you can, that you can utilize. But resources, whether you're a pastor, um, a, a teacher, or just, I want to say just with air quotes, just the average person who wants to know Jesus and more and grow in the relationship I'd love for you to check it out, thespiritualreformation.com. Well, in this episode, it's a, it's a kind of nice segue because I'm going to be talking about the church, institutions, and the soul. The church, institutions, and the soul. You know, the church, Bill Hybels once said, uh, it's in one of his books that, that has something to do with courage. Sorry, Bill, I, I don't remember the the full name, but it had something to do with with courage. It was a pretty good book, but at the very beginning of his book, it is a, a f- quote, a phrase, a statement that has stuck with me all these years. And he said that the church is the hope of the world. The church is the hope of the world. And I agreed with it back then, and I still agree with it today. Not because of the church or churches or buildings as we typically think of church, but because the church is the ecclesia, the called out ones. It is you and I as followers of Jesus. We are the church. We are the hope of the world because Christ is inside of us. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. And we are the light and the hope of the world. And Jesus himself said it. He says, you are the light of the world. Don't hide your light, you know, under a a lampstand or under a bushel or under anything else or under a blanket or under a house or whatever. Make sure that people can see your light. And so the church, the people of God are the hope of the world. And we've been struggling to do church really for 2,000 years. And, you know, uh, my friend Chris Schreiber and I, a few years back, we, we did a podcast and we creatively titled it, Whatever This Thing Is. That, that's the title, Whatever This Thing Is. We were, I think, all out of energy by the time we came up with the content and couldn't think of what to title it. You may still be able to hear it on Podbean or Apple uh, podcast. It was a, we just did six episodes and we were going to do more, but he had to, or decided to go and move his family to Dallas, Texas. And so, you know, that was the end of that. Yeah, I'm not bitter at all, um, at all. Uh, but it was really fun to engage with him as both of us just were, were really trying to understand ourselves and help other people understand what is the purpose of the church. And because church can often get so messed up. And why does it get so messed up? Because the church is people. And we are messed up. Anytime humans get involved in something, our egos, our pride, our selfishness, 
our narcissism, our grab for power and control just takes over. And that has been the battle that the church has faced for the last 2,000 years. I mean, it started even in the New Testament. You got Ananias and Sapphira who are trying to pretend to give all of their possessions and their land away so that they can look good in front of their, you know, the early church. And Peter calls them out. This is the scariest passage in the Bible for any kid. If you really want your kid to learn never to lie, just tell them the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, and they will forever, ever be scared to tell a lie. But Peter called them out and, and, and struck them dead. Both Ananias and Sapphira died because they were trying to lie to the church. The church has struggled for 2,000 years to define itself, to be the light of the world, to be the community of believers who come and gather together and, and share that hope to the rest of the world. Some churches have succeeded in doing it well for a time but no church can do it well forever because again it's full of people who are flawed and our flaws especially if we don't understand the purpose of church and especially if we are not in the process of spiritual formation and accountability we will mess up the church and that happens again and again and again and again. And so, you know, if you know anything about church history over the last 2,000 years, you know that the church has been through a lot of, a lot of scuffles, a lot of, you know, a few schisms, a few breaks. Um, people have, you know, kind of quit the church, so to speak, and gone off and done their own thing. And, and the most famous one that probably you may be familiar with is the Protestant Reformation. It was titled that because of this protest, uh, kind of a protest movement. And it didn't start as a movement that was trying to protest um, everything about the church. And the church at that time was the Roman Catholic Church. There, there, were, there were a few other churches like the Eastern Orthodox Church and, and the Coptic Christians in Egypt. But, but really the main church in Western Europe and, and in most other places was the Roman Catholic Church. And so Martin Luther and others, they, they weren't trying to break off from the church. They were just trying to bring the many, many issues that were going on. This is in the 1500s. And the medieval period for the church was really a struggle at times. Um, you had priests who were engaging in all types of illicit sexual, you know, sins they weren't allowed to be married um, there was a time when they were allowed to be married and then there was a time and and really since then that they weren't and and so you get um, you get priests who are doing things they shouldn't be doing and then you get you know really at that time there's not a lot of upward mobility you had a few different options if you were a man you could become a priest you could maybe become uh, a peasant farmer maybe you could become a knight and go and get killed in one of the crusades it, you don't have a lot of options so you know you go off into the priesthood and whether or not you wanted to be a priest you're there and and there just was a lot of abuse um, people weren't growing because the mass meaning the the sermon or the service was done in latin and that was a language, especially by the 1500s, that maybe the 1% of the population knew. 
and it was only the educated and the elite, the rest of the world, didn't read or, or understand or speak Latin. And in fact, the majority of the world didn't read. They were illiterate. Uh, and they had all the, their own vernacular, uh, all these various languages and dialects of languages. And so, you know, you'd go to church on a Sunday morning and probably, you know, you know when to sit and you know when to stand or you just kind of stand there huddled in this little hallway and, and you're hearing the priest recite the mass and maybe you go up to receive the Eucharist and be blessed, but that's it. And you, you don't really, you're not getting anything. And then, of course, you may know that the Bible hadn't, the Bible at that time was only written in, in uh, primarily in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. You do have um, some that are starting to be translated into English, but, but still primarily the common person not only didn't have a Bible, they couldn't, if they had a Bible, they couldn't read it because it was only in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. And so the Reformation was a breaking point, not just about addressing the abuses. And it's very important to note that, that Martin Luther, again, he wasn't trying to uh, break off from the church. He was, he was a priest himself. He was just trying to address some of the issues that were there. And it was the church that excommunicated him. It was the church that kicked him out. And so he, he still was a Christian, wanted to serve the Lord. And so people began to follow him and, and thus became, you know, Lutherans and Lutheranism. And, and you get this sweeping movement all across Europe and John, John Calvin in France and Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland and, and, you know, various movements that are taking place because they're, they're finally saying we, we not only do we, uh, well, I haven't even touched on the worst of the, I don't know if you would say it's the worst, but um, another of the very, very big significant abuses in the Catholic Church at that time was the sale of indulgences, where you would buy what were known as indulgences, and those indulgences would essentially, um, you would be able to, in the Catholic belief system, there is a belief about purgatory. So purgatory is a place in, in the Catholic theology is a place that you and I go. It's a holding place, and there are levels there. You and I go there. We don't go automatically to heaven. I mean, some of us, the most righteous of us may, you know, the saints may get up right to heaven, but the rest of us have to go to this holding place called purgatory, and we essentially have to work our way out. And But people on the other side, people in, in real life, can pray for us and eventually not just pray for us, but they can buy an indulgence that helps us to move up out of purgatory or out of purgatory altogether and into heaven. So it's the releasing of souls up to heaven um, that, you know, these indulgences do. And so, of course, people don't want their loved ones, the thought of their loved ones still suffering or in purgatory. They want to be able to make sure their loved ones have a good afterlife. And so this theology was ripping people off. I mean, people were, and they weren't wealthy. These were peasants, a lot of them. And so there was just a lot, a lot of abuse. And, and Martin Luther and these other uh, Protestant reformers were just trying to reform the church. The church, unfortunately, didn't really want to be reformed, and it really did do a lot of excommunicating and kicking people out, or people just left, and, 
And then there was what's known as the Catholic Counter-Reformation, where they did go through a series of, of cleaning up their acts, so to speak, and really pressing into uh, a more serious devotional life that didn't require all of these various things. And it did help. And we see that, but it didn't, I, there are, you know, I think some people, and if you're, you know, Catholic or come from the Catholic background as a Catholic brother and sister in Christ, um, there would be some things theologically that Protestants would disagree with. Um, and the Catholic Church has continued to reform. In, I think it was 1960 or 1962, it went through Vatican Council II, where it, it no longer required that the Mass be done in Latin, and it made a lot of other changes. Over the last 60 years, unfortunately, a lot of um, stories of abuse that the Catholic Church has covered up and are now coming to light, and and they are really trying to, hopefully, trying to make amends for that. Um, but but as a result of, back to Martin Luther, as a result of the Protestant Reformation, you get all of these denominations of, of eventually, 400 years later, the Pentecostal movement and the Azusa Street Revival. You get... But even before that, you get the Methodists and the, the Wesleyans and the Baptists and the, the Anabaptists and, uh, again, the Lutherans and, and so many others that are forming these movements. And the desire is to reform, at that point, to reform the way we do church and the way we connect with God. That was at the heart of the reformers and reformers ever since. Every time in history there is a challenge, there is a concern or a difference of opinion or a, a, a fight, if you will, about something in the church, it's because people are very concerned, I think majority of the time, they're very concerned about how the church looks and presents itself. You do get a few people in there who should not be doing anything in church, especially leading, who are just trying to take control and are power hungry and that's a whole other part of it but I think the majority of the time are good people who are just trying to understand what it means to follow Jesus and so the church has gone through and continues to go through periods of reformation and periods of change well just recently um, there is there was going on the Southern Baptist Convention uh, Southern Baptists are are um, different from the uh, American Baptists, and there's a there are a few other segments of Baptists. Uh, the Baptist denomination is is very it's loose, but it's also connected in some ways. There's there they have a lot of autonomy in some ways where they run their churches, but they have some beliefs that they they you know require. And in the Southern Baptist uh, convention, the Southern Baptist denominations they hold to the belief that women should not be pastors. And so just recently in their, their most recent convention, this is June of 2023, they officially, um, I'm using the phrase kicked out, but um, that's, I'm sure that's not the phrase they use, but they, they use the phrase, or I, I'm using the phrase kicked out, but, but essentially they, uh, I don't know if they refer to them as disfellowshipped or if they, they've, um, taken away their papers, or I don't even know what the right term is, but two churches, two churches are no longer allowed to be a part of that denomination because these two churches 
believe that women should be pastors just just as much as men and i don't remember what the one church one of the churches is but the other church is pretty famous has a had a pretty pretty famous pastor that you might know rick warren at saddleback church in orange county southern california and i i I heard, I, I haven't verified it, but I heard that, that Rick Warren wrote a letter apologizing to all women or all women pastors about not allowing them to serve in church in that particular dom- denomination. And kudos to, to Rick Warren to, uh, obviously as a female, I believe that women should be allowed to be, to, to pastor, but he in in allowing himself to kind of stand this ground and the pastors current pastor of the church to stand their ground and say yes women can be pastors they are pushing for a different type of reformation they are pushing for a reformation of of egalitarianism and a belief that women are called to pastoral positions just as much as men the church has always been going through and really always does need a time of reformation, a time of, of rethinking, rebuilding, looking at itself to see whether or not what it is doing is good. It is actually making a difference. We are three years from the start of the, the COVID-19 global pandemic that shut down the whole world. And so many things will never be the same again as a result of that. It, it's hard for such a thing to impact the world for everything to go back to normal. And we are still catching up. And I know churches, churches and teachers in schools were especially hit hard. And I want to say students as well, but churches especially were really, really hit hard and they are struggling to recover. And I would suggest that some of that may be good for some churches because some of them probably did need to rethink and reevaluate what it is that they're doing. Some churches who may have been really, really thriving and, and really establishing God's kingdom in their location may have been hit hard and, and maybe, you know, it really isn't fair that they, they struggled through that. But as a result, this is where we are, and we're needing to reimagine, revision, um, get a re, revision, a new vision, a fresh vision for what God is calling the church to do and to be. And lately, I've been thinking of this, this idea about institutions and seeing the connection historically between institutions, whether corporations, businesses, or the church denominations. Um, uh, the Roman Catholic Church is the biggest uh, Christian denomination in the world. I think it has, it's over a billion members. I don't even know what the number, staggering number is today. It is an institution. It is not even, it's hard to even refer to it as a church because it's an institution. And it is a business. They have a lot of money. Um, and and so I've just been reflecting upon this idea of institutions. And, and it's something that I've been wrestling with for a while. And the relationship between it, it, what's this institution, 
or even the institutional church and, and the significance between churches in general. It's interesting, and if you go back, if you can find that podcast that Chris and I did, um, you know, whatever this thing is, podcast, we really go back into the history of how the church began and, and why it looks like the way it does today and how many of our practices and the things that we think are normal actually go back to just practical things that may not even be rooted in scripture so much. There's really not a whole lot that the scripture tells us about how we are to do church. In fact, there's very little. Um, church really was an organic movement, a community of believers, like, not unlike, uh, you know, the Protestant reformers. The early church consisted of disciples of Jesus who were kicked out of the Jewish synagogue and the temple. They were not allowed, Peter and, and the other apostles and disciples were not allowed in the synagogue or the temple anymore. They were kicked out of the faith. They didn't leave the faith. They were kicked out of what became this split between Judaism and Christianity. See, Jesus was a Jew, right? He came from the messianic lineage of David. He was Jewish and he came from the religion, which was the religion of the Israelites. It was the religion that goes all the way back to uh, the creation story of God creating the world and Adam and Eve and then calling Abraham to be set apart. And Jesus comes from that. And nowhere does Jesus in his teaching call for his disciples to break away from the essence of the faith. What happened was the Jewish people at that time couldn't handle who Jesus was, nor could they handle his followers. And so they pushed them out and created what we now have as the Jewish religion and the Christian religion. And it's something similar to what we see with Martin Luther and the Protestant reformers. They were pushed out. And what you get are all these other denominations that form the Protestant, you know, Protestant movement, and then you get the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church didn't want to listen to or respond to the concerns and the, the cares that these reformers were bringing, and so they just excommunicated them. I wonder, in hindsight, if they regret that. I wonder if they look back and think, wow, could, couldn't we all just get along? Couldn't we... You know, couldn't we have made that work? I don't know. I, I, I think that I wonder, and this kind of goes into this understanding of, of the institution, whatever it might be. When the, when the early church or institutions or businesses, when they get to a certain point, they become so big that they become an entity unto themselves. And I think we see that with churches and again with other Whatever business it is, whether it's, you know, the mega Apple or uh, Microsoft or Google or Amazon, uh, down to the smaller businesses and, and things that we have and we buy from, things can get really, really big. And I, I think whenever I think of that, I think of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And biblical scholars and theologians, just hang with me. Just I, I, there is a purpose here. So I'm not I'm not quite trying to take this out of context. 
But in this Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, this is after the flood, and it talks about how humanity really began to populate. Uh, they really took God's command to go forth and populate seriously. And so they just began to grow bigger and bigger and stronger. And they wanted to build this tower to go up to the heaven. And because they wanted to ascend to the heavens and really it, it in the wording of the scripture, it talks about them kind of ascending to the heavens to kind of reach God, so to, so to speak. But really what it's talking about is that they were, they were coming together and in their mass coming together, they were creating something that, that would give them a lot of power. And God said, um, they're getting, you know, they're, they're too united and they're not united for the right reasons. Uh, that certainly feels like some institutions and some churches. They're, they're united, all right. They're not really united for the right reason. And so God, in the story, he, he um, strikes their languages. They all begin to speak in other languages. And so begins the idea of that's where we've got all these different languages that we speak. And, and he confused their speech, it says. And so they didn't know how to communicate. And therefore, if they couldn't communicate, they couldn't really work together to try and overthrow God. It, it, was, it was like a coup. They were trying to, they were trying to overthrow God. And so... It just, to me, it's almost like a reminder, a warning that hubris is, is something that humans have really deep within us. We, we, we think we can often, we think we can do more or are more than we really are. And though we've made some incredible inventions and only because God has created us in his image with the ability and talents that he has given us, Though we have made some incredibly amazing things, we've also created some really, really scary things like AI, artificial intelligence. See my podcast about technology and AI and, and that I'm, a, I'm not a little concerned about, about this technological advance. But there's something about humans uniting and coming together for purposes that are not necessarily good. And there's something about mass groups of people coming together. And we see this in, in the book of Acts to a certain extent. In, in Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost and he preaches an amazing sermon and you get thousands that are, that are saved and added to their number. And what do they do? They just continue to hang out in Jerusalem with these groups of other Christians and they're meeting in houses and they're sharing their food and they're sharing their common whatever because their lives have changed. They're no longer... Uh, again, they're, they're now going to have tension with the Jewish church, uh, uh, the Jewish religion. And so everything has changed. And so their whole lives get turned upside down. So they begin to kind of form a commune. But wait, by the time we get to Acts chapter 8, this guy named Saul, the future Paul the Apostle, comes along. And Saul leads the charge uh, to break up this, this commune, all of these Christians, uh, because he is hell-bent believing that this Jesus was a bad guy. Of course, if you know the story, he goes on his own experiences, his own conversion experience, and um, meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, and, and a few days later he receives the Holy Spirit and is, is saved, uh, begins to follow Jesus. But he leads this charge against the Christians, 
And that persecution that starts there, it's almost like taking a stick and hitting water, the top of water, and just bam, and watching the ripple effects. That's what happens when Saul begins to lead the charge of persecution. They scatter. The Christians who are in Jerusalem, they scatter. They go everywhere they possibly can, and they continue to scatter. The church in Jerusalem is never the same. It never recovers as the, as the, uh, it, it stays as kind of a hub, but people don't congregate there. It's not safe. And eventually that becomes not safe anymore as well. A few years later, Rome comes in and destroys Jerusalem because the Jews try to do an overthrow, try to do an uprising. And, and Christians, even by that time, they've left that area. They've gone. They, and, and they're going and they're spreading the good news of the kingdom of God. They're going and spreading news of the gospel. Biblical scholars look at that and they see that, that though that, that would have been awful to experience that persecution, they see it as, as a positive thing, right? So as, you know, a blessing in disguise, because the church was staying holed up there in Jerusalem, hanging out with one another, you know, taking care of each other's needs, killing a few people every once in a while, like Ananias and Sapphira, who are getting out of line, but otherwise taking care of each other. And it's like they had become safe and comfortable there. And they were thousands. But when persecution hits, they flee. And not only do they flee, they spread the gospel and take the gospel with them. The phrase holy huddle, if you've ever heard that, uh, maybe you've grown up in church and heard that phrase before, it, it refers to this idea that we can get in a holy huddle with our other fellow Christians where we huddle together because we have so much in common and there's connection and there's safety there. But that holy huddle prevents not only others from coming in and building connections with us, it prevents us from going out and reaching and connecting with others. Those types of holy huddles, I think, get really, really big and can get big in, in many different situations where we kind of huddle together. We like what a certain church does. And, and you know, there's, there's definitely a lot more money and opportunities and talent. The bigger your church is, there is. I've been there. I've experienced it. The more people you have, the more money you have, the more opportunities you have. And there are so many big churches that are doing amazing things. So I'm not knocking big churches. The concern, however, is that the bigger we get, the easier it becomes to become an institution rather than an organic movement of people. The bigger you are, the more the focus becomes on stabilizing yourself and making sure that you don't lose what you've built. Institutions, whether they are corporations, businesses, churches, schools, it's very easy for those institutions or churches or businesses or schools to become insular and myopic, focused on surviving. And the focus becomes on not on reaching out and living out the gospel message, but on making sure that the institution itself 
is preserved and stabilized. Well, church growth theorists and, and uh, experts in, in this area will tell you that there is a life and death cycle to every church. I think there's probably a life and death cycle to businesses, to institutions. I think there, to a certain extent, is a life and death cycle to countries. And though I would never want to see my country, the United States, I would never want to see it die, I think there, especially if you look at the life and death cycle of a church, there are ways to keep it from absolutely dying. But even then in the death, something else can be reborn. And we've seen that historically with countries, that countries may, may dwindle to the point or may be absorbed by another country and so kind of die but are kind of reborn. Or they reinvent themselves so they don't fully, fully die and then they can kind of go back on the upward growth trajectory. But because humans and life has a life and death cycle, there is a life and death cycle or life and death reality to everything that we build, whether it's a church, an institution, a school, a business, whatever. And when our focus becomes on keeping that thing alive for its own sake, just because it is, or when we become very, very focused on its own success just because what it is. And again, here I'm talking about anything from a big business to, to a church, to a country. When we become so focused on our own success and keeping our institution alive, the bigger we get, the more the individual person in that thing becomes overlooked, minimized, sometimes even sacrificed for the sake of the thing, the institution, the church, the business. We'll sacrifice somebody's life, and maybe not literally, hopefully not literally death, but, but sacrifice as in take advantage of them or kick them out or whatever it might be for the good of the many. And sometimes that does need to happen. And, and in that case, I wouldn't necessarily call it a sacrifice. I would call it a, you know, a removal, a needed removal, right? Uh, like a cancerous mole. You got to just get rid of it because it's not helping you. But when we look at people as dispensable or disposable, as people that we can just sacrifice for the good of the institution, I think we have gone far off from where Jesus has called us to be. In the Western world today, and this is actually not true just in the Western world, this is true all over the world because there are businesses, huge corporations, institutions, schools, churches, everywhere. I think the biggest church in the world is still Dr. Yong uh, Yi Cho's church in Korea. I think it is still the biggest church. Hundreds of thousands of people. Amazing. In the world today, we've built things we've never thought possible, and we've built big things. But at what cost? What have we lost? Whom have we lost? What are the individuals who, who may be attending your church or may be employees at your company? 
but you barely know them. You barely pour into them. They're barely seen or heard. Remember that Jesus chose to come to earth 2,000 years ago when technology was not even, I mean, it was, I don't know why he came at that time, because that would have been the worst time to come. People didn't live very long. Maybe that's why. He was like, is this all I can handle? I don't know. But his ministry was one-on-one. -on -one. He could have come today. I know that it's going to break our brain a little bit, but just hang with me. He could have come today and had all the technological advances at his disposal. And he could have just, you know, said this message and maybe the world was saved. He didn't use any technology. He just ministered to each person one-on-one. -on -one. Sometimes he did thousands, but it was just because they were kind of whining about food and so he had to feed them. But usually it was one-on-one. -on -one. I fear that the bigger we get, the more advanced we get, the wealthier we get, the more we lose the individual, the person. And when we've done that, we have, we have really lost our way. God has called us to love him and love others. Life, then, is about God and others. Period. We are called to make disciples as we go. We are called to follow Jesus first and then make disciples. Love God, love others. Our relationship with God, our relationship with others. That is what matters. And so I just want to challenge all of us. Wherever we are at. The institutions that we may be in or have been in. The bigness of your, your institution is a concern just on a general level. The bigger we get, the smaller we actually have to get. And that's what big churches who are really successful and who are good at what they do have figured out. The bigger we grow, the smaller we have to go because we need to make sure that people are not lost. There are big companies and institutions and big schools that are doing amazing things that haven't lost this idea about the human about the individual made in the image of God. There are some who are doing it well, so I'm not knocking the big, the big stuff. I really am not. But I want us to reflect on, and maybe you are in an institution, a church, something that you don't feel seen, you don't feel heard, you don't feel known. What are ways that you can communicate that to the people in that institution and maybe that institution is not the place for you how can you help or how can you help others be seen and known and heard in that institution I do believe that the Lord is calling us to constant reformations 
I don't mean that we have to tear down every structure or tear down every church or, or start from scratch, but I do think that we should be constantly reflecting upon ways that we can do better and make sure that we are not missing what is the essence of life, God and others. And so I want to encourage all of us, every single one of us, how can we continue to be reformed in our spirit? How can we continue to ensure that our love for God and our love for others is primary? How can we ensure the areas of influence that we have make sure that we do not overlook the humanity of everything, which is what we are called. We are called to look for the humanity, to look for the human, to care for them, to love them, to show them be that light. How can we do that? I pray that, that we would continue to allow God to reform our understanding of what it means to do church, what it means to do business, what it means to do life in a very, very complicated world. Well, thanks for listening to episode 47 of the Nefesh podcast. Don't forget to check out the spiritualreformation.com and let me know how I can be a support, encouragement, a resource to you. And we will talk to you next time.